Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. Now on to today. For my second and third segments, I'm welcoming Kathy Ruby, longtime college finance consultant here at College Coach and veteran of financial aid offices at St. Olaf and Shippensburg College. She and I will be responding to your listener questions on paying for your college education and being admitted. But first, are you a high school senior or the parents of a senior? Do you have too much good news? Or in other words, have you been admitted to multiple colleges and you're having trouble deciding between them? Mary Sue Yoon, veteran consultant here at College Coach and former admission officer at Barnard and Whittier Colleges, will join me to discuss how to choose the best school for you from among your options. Welcome, Mary Sue. Hi, Sally. So this is the happiest time of the admission process, I think, for most students. You know, generally, they've been admitted to some colleges they're excited about. Um, But the downside, if they've been admitted to multiple of those colleges and they don't have a a clear first choice, is that they have to choose, which some find pretty stressful. I do try to remind students that, in general, they're not going to make a mistake because there's so many great colleges out there, and most students are very happy where they land. But all that said, Mary Sue, what do you tell a student who's struggling to choose which college to attend after being admitted? Yeah, so it can actually be, you know, it can be a super exciting time for students because hopefully they have a number of great choices and it's just sort of like how do you choose between the the options that you have. So I definitely encourage the students that I work with to, um, if possible, go revisit the schools that you've been admitted to, to for those admitted student days. Um, it can come t- sometimes give you a great feel of the campus and of what the students are like, and you can also meet some other admitted students, so you can kind of get a sense as to who some of your peers might be um, in, in that college community. So uh, visiting can be a great way to kind of find out more information, um, researching this go- college, researching the particular programs um, that you are interested in. Hopefully they did some of that research before they applied, but <laughs> now that it's kind of more real and uh, these are actual offers, um, knowing a little bit more about sort of what the academic program might look like during your four years, um, going a little more in-depth into that, I think is a good way to sort of um, make some of those final decisions. Uh, and I do encourage students to kind of make a pro and a con list for sort of those final choices. If they really are stuck, maybe they're down to three schools and they can't decide between the two, you know, start to write down your thoughts about what did you like, what didn't you like, and sometimes that can kind of crystallize the decision for them. Sometimes not, Unless- but sometimes... Yeah, hopefully, hopefully it does. But let's, I think that we, um, I think that we should go into a little more detail here, because I think that Mm -hmm. part of the issue is, you know, for some students visiting a college means walking around, um, you know, but you're really talking about kind of observing the other students, maybe connecting with them. So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, what they might want to do on those admitted student days. Right. So I, if you can, uh, highly recommend um, a student try and sit in on some classes and really hang out with some students beyond just sort of 
or walk around the campus beyond just the admissions events. Um, as a former admissions officer, I know that the admissions events, although lovely, were often, you know, sort of the sparkly, nicest view of the campus. And so sometimes you just want to talk to the regular average student um, who's not specifically chosen to be a tour guide or something like that, who obviously tour guides really love a school, otherwise they probably wouldn't be giving tours for the school. But you just kind of want to hang out and get a vibe as to what the general population at the school looks like. Um, I also ask about things when you're on the campus, like if there are um, campus publications, whether those are in paper or online that you could read. Um, Sometimes that can give you a sense of the culture and vibe of the school. Um, Look to see more information about activities that you might be particularly interested in. Um, Although, you know, for me, like, although I was not a music major in college, having college um, musical ensembles that I could play in was very important to my college selection process. And so I I wanted to kind of find out, okay, what are the actual musical ensemble opportunities? How much do they meet? How active are they? So some of those activity questions can be good things to find out, as well as the sitting in on classes and sort of asking around for the general population as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually, uh, I worked with a student who was pretty shy um, and so his father, when he would take him to visit, would make him go up to students and talk to them, which he was terrified to do. But at every single time, like the students were enormously generous with their time and really happy to talk to him. And I think like the one time a student said no, they were super apologetic and said, I'm late for class or honestly, I would love to talk to you about this place. You know, so so really, like, it may seem like, how am I going to just strike up a conversation with a student? But, you know, uh, I think students are really proud to talk about their school. I'm mm-hmm. sure that you would have been when you were back in right. your Cornell days. Yep, absolutely. And uh, and I do think that, you know, if they're not really happy to talk to you about the school, that, that can tell you something about that environment as well. Um, so, you know, I think it's, uh, it, it is a really helpful thing, even for your shyer students to just kind of start some of those conversations and, and really say, uh, what do you like? What don't you like? Now, I always do caution my students. It's, it's like any um, kind of public community forum or thing that you might read online. Don't judge a school entirely by one interaction with one student who might have been having a bad day because occasionally a student runs into one of those sort of negative students on campus and uh, gets sort of a wrong impression. But the good part about going to visit is that you know, maybe you talk to a few different students so you get a more kind of representative sample mm-hmm. of opinions. Yeah, if you would talk to me right before my senior thesis was due, I might not have <laughs> right. had as rosy a picture. But immediately after I turned it in, I was so glad that I'd gone to read. So, right. <laughs> so, so yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Just talk to more than one person just so you can be sure and be aware of if it's right before finals that things might feel a little bit different. So, a little stressful, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk to, um, I kind of want to dig in a little bit more um, into a little more specifics. Like, let's say a student Mm -hmm. knows they like the social environment equally Mm -hmm. at a few different colleges, but they're trying to find out more about a particular major or majors. Obviously, they Mm -hmm. can ask around about, they can ask around to students, but what are some other things that they can do, even if they're not on campus? So even if they're not on campus, they can look into that department's um, web pages and, um, you know, find out a little bit more about what professors research on the campus, uh, what the course catalog looks like for that department. 
Um, I actually had a student that I was working with this year um, who's a transfer student who was really uh, is transferring as a philosophy major to another school, and she particularly wanted um, a really particular area of philosophy represented in her new school. So she was looking for certain types of classes um, in her um, in her review of what was available. And, you know, many incoming freshmen are not quite that particular yet, but I do think it's a good idea to kind of look around not only at, you know, the representation of professors and what they teach, but also, uh, you know, what their research is about, um, what are the distribution requirements that are required for all students. Some of those things can be really helpful and can be pretty easily found on websites. I'm I'm always surprised at students with how technologically savvy they are that many don't go beyond kind of the first couple clicks into a website. So sometimes you have to dig a little bit, but um, that information, I assure you, is on those colleges and those department websites as to what professors are doing the research on, what classes they teach, um, sort of what their uh, educational philosophy is in teaching, um, a lot of that information, even sometimes things like course syllabuses that would tell, you know, what the textbooks that they would be using um, are out there as well. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Well, what I try and remind students is that it's not all about uh, prospective students. The website is also there for current students. So essentially, um, you can access information that's being used by current students fairly Mm -hmm. frequently. Really, right. you know, yeah. they don't see any need to have like, yeah, a course description behind lock and key. Um, mm-hmm. So, all right. All right. Great. Yeah. So use that website and dig deep into it. Um, what if a student is undecided? Then what do you recommend? So for undecided students, I would absolutely um, think about what's going to be the advising process at that school. Uh, even sometimes for decided students, uh, you want to know what the advising process, or for many times for, for a student who thinks they know what they want to major in. You know, when I was at Barnard in the admissions office, we actually did a study, and we tracked um, students from what they wrote on their admissions application to what they eventually declared as their major, and about 75% of students changed their mind, um, sometimes pretty significantly. So most students will go through a process in college of sort of changing their mind and considering a few other different majors before landing on the one that they actually major in. Um, so you want to have a sense as to not only what the general education, the distribution requirements might be at that school. Some colleges are very flexible in what you have to take. Some schools are very rigid about what you have to take um, for your four years of general distribution requirements, um, but also what's the advising process like? What's career counseling like at the school? What are going to be the mentors or the faculty members that you could go to when you're looking at choosing your freshman schedule and you really have no idea what to pick? Um, you know, having a great mentor can really help a student who is undecided get into a path that leads them to a career. Um, and as I said, many, you know, I went into college intending to be a math major, um, thought about a few different things and ended up as a psychology major. So, uh, <laughs> as I said, I went in and, and it had you asked me as a 17-year-old how sure I was that I was going to be a math major, I was pretty darn sure. Um, but, again, through the process of college and that journey, really decided psychology was much more uh, in line with what I wanted to do. So, it, it is a process, and I think uh, seeing those mentors and those, the, the way in which uh, um, students are counseled at the school um, and asking 
current students about that is a great way to kind of find out that, and for parents to feel at ease that their undecided student will find a path through the college process. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I actually talked to a student who's at a large public university, and I want to be clear that not all of them are like this. And she said that the advising, um, she's lucky because she knows what she wants to major in, so she's got a fairly clear path. But for at this particular university, the counseling was basically, um, you know, a, an advisor talked to 20 students at one time in a group, told them what they needed to do very briefly, and then met with each student for basically a minute. So a student who needed to kind of talk over things and get some of that mentoring was really out of luck. and had So, so like, dig deep, as you're saying. I'm just highlighting that. Don't mm-hmm. assume that all advising is the same. Um, you know, dig deep and ask students, like, what's it like when you're signing up for classes? What kind of help are you getting? Or, or lack thereof, you know, really try and get the details. And this story has always stuck with me, too, because this was a student. She loves her university, but she said this was for her the only downside. She really thought they needed to do a better job of it. So, um, all right. So last, let's go ahead and talk about extracurricular activities. I think mm-hmm. some students are so focused on academics and they kind of think extracurriculars will take care of themselves. And I think sometimes they do. Often they do. But every once in a while they don't. So, you know, how do you research those and what should you look for? So every college has some sort of office of student activities, whatever it's called at that particular school might vary, but there is some sort of student life or student engagement or a student activities office that will have information about what opportunities are offered in the extracurricular area. And I would say, you know, don't discount the importance of extracurriculars in terms of your happiness as a student. Um, Yes, you're going to college for studying and for, you know, earning your degree, but if there are those things that you love to do that, you know, maybe your catharsis and the way to kind of relieve stress that are really important in your life and in your student life um, throughout college. So I would say check in with the Office of Student Activities. Um, Oftentimes they have a list of activities online. Sometimes now, um, I, I wish it was as, as easy as it was a few years ago where that was all sort of publicly available, but sometimes now there is um, sort of a student sign-in that's required to sort of see the event list on campus. But even in that case, I would say calling up um, that office or visiting the office if you're on campus and just saying, could you give me a representative sample of sort of some of the clubs and activities that are on this campus and how often they meet? They should be able to answer that information for you. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's kind of the way to think about it. And, again, you know, if there are must-have things that you think will lead you to being happier in college, then don't sort of dismiss those as being as important um, in your search for the perfect school as some of the academic pieces as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the example um, that I would give of that, I was talking to a young woman who was planning on transferring because she – she was unhappy at her college. She said it was really a, a kind of a, a jock school is how she put it. You know, mm-hmm. really the student um, extracurricular focus was athletics and she wasn't an athlete. Um, and her thing was was community service. And when she looked at the list initially, she saw one um, extra, you know, she saw one club that was devoted to service. And she's like, that's cool. I'm covered. And then it turns out that they only meet once a month. And so she really doesn't have 
right. the outlet that she needs. So, so really like pay attention to those things, identify what your driver is. What is that thing that you love and make sure that they don't just have one outlet for that, but maybe even multiple outlets, or if it's just one outlet, make sure it's a really, really active one. So. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much, Mary Sue. Thanks for having me, Sally, and good luck to all the listeners who are in the last few days of making that that decision. And and as Sally said, you can't really make a wrong one. Um, And many students are, most students are really happy with where they choose. So good luck. Yeah. Yeah, lots of good news, really. Try and focus on that. All right, everyone, we're going to take a short break. But when we get back, Kathy Ruby will be joining me to answer listener questions. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. In fitness and health, we all deserve a second chance. Join host Michael Skog for the program, You Only Stronger. You always have the ability to start fresh, even if you slip up on your diet or fitness program. Even small steps taken throughout the day can help. Each show will conclude with weekly assignments that you can use and will want to hear your feedback. You Only Stronger airs live Mondays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, Kathy Ruby is now joining me to answer your questions about admissions and finance. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, Sally. Good to be here. Or actually, I should clarify, Kathy Ruby is going to answer the questions about finance, and I'll be answering the questions about admissions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was a misstatement so. on my part. Don't worry, Kathy. I'm not going to make you answer admissions questions. Um, so, so Kathy, when Mary Sue and I were talking about sort of how to choose um, between colleges when you've already been admitted, we didn't mention finances at all, and obviously that's an important element. So do you have any kind of suggestions uh, for parents to think about, parents and students to think about uh, before they sign on the dotted line? 
Oh, sure. I mean, I think we could probably do a whole show about it, but I think just quickly um, in terms of looking at uh, what a college is going to cost, make sure that you're understanding what it's going to cost for all four years uh, so that you're looking at what's renewable and what's not and understanding fully what the costs are going to be for all four years and really have good conversations with your student about what's affordable and what's not. Um, If you're going to be borrowing and if your student's going to be borrowing, use the calculators that are out there to, to really give yourself a good idea of what that's going to mean to you later on in terms of your monthly payments and how much interest you'll pay. Um, and, and as obvious as this sounds, remember you may have younger children who you'll also have to pay for. So uh, don't ignore the numbers. Make sure you take a careful look at the numbers as part of the decision as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That sounds pretty important, all of that, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so. <laughs> all right. Well, since we just had a little financial aid bit, why don't you start with the admission questions? All right, so this is from Lori, who says, I have a question for you regarding teacher recommendations. Uh, My son is a junior in high school. Is it okay for him to request recommendations from a Spanish teacher and an English teacher? He knows these teachers better than any math or science teachers he's had thus far. Um, He's mostly likely going to declare undecided for a college major when he applies later this year. So, I, I mean, I really, I think for 99.99% of the colleges, this is going to be absolutely fine. Um, I, you know, um, you do not need math or science teachers unless um, there are some schools like maybe MIT, um, you know, Caltech, maybe some of the tech schools might have specific requirements for math or science. Or sometimes if you're applying into an engineering program, um, mm-hmm. they want ma- they might want math or science occasionally. So what you want to do is really just look up the requirements if your son um, is going into a more math or science-based major. But as you said, he will likely declare undecided. So for undecided, absolutely, you know, Spanish and English should be great. Um, And I know this is annoying, but I'm going to throw in one more caveat. Back when I worked at the University of Chicago, we did prefer um, English or social science and then math or science. So we didn't prefer foreign language, um, but not because foreign language wasn't a real subject. I mean, we, we, we thought foreign language was very important, but because it was rare that students became advanced enough in a foreign language that we were able to get a sense of what kind of intellectual or critical thinkers they were in mm. that subject. So, like, let's say, let's say a student had been in AP French in their junior year, then probably that would have been a great recommendation. But, you know, French 1 is fairly basic. Um, yeah. So, so that's why we were sort of less excited about that. But again, for 99% of the schools, <laughs> Spanish and English is fine, and there is not going to be a requirement for a math or science recommendation. Um, but check, it's going to be on the college websites. Um, so absolutely, just check and see. All right, great. All right, so I'll ask you, so Stacy asked, when do I have to do the FAFSA for my college sophomore? Haha, <laughs> good Good question. And the first, the first piece of that is, yes, you do have to do it for your college sophomore. So for those of you 
who are just wrapping up the process this year as, you know, first-year students um, making your decisions do know that you have to fill out that FAFSA every year to have your financial aid renewed. So you do have to have to complete it every year. Um, for most colleges, um, they will publish deadlines for when you need to do the FAFSA um, on their websites. And uh, most of the time for returning students, the deadline is a little later than for new students because there's not as much of a rush to get financial aid packages out because you don't have to make a decision by May 1st if you're a returning student. You're probably going to be going back to that school. So, um so most colleges will have deadlines in the February-March time frame. Um, so that's an okay time to do it. But remember, too, that the FAFSA is available October 1st for the following academic year. So, for instance, the FAFSA, the nineteen twenty. <laughs> FAFSA will become available on October 1st of 2018. And so it becomes available in October. And if it's easy for you to do it, then it doesn't hurt to do it early. But the latest would probably be February or March. Um, but check with your college and check their deadline on their website. Mm-hmm. And don't miss that deadline. I worked at a school yeah. once where if you didn't get your aid uh, requested on time, um, you lost 10% of your grant aid. Yes. I mean, it was pretty severe penalty, but it was, you know, they warned people and warned people and warned people about it. So, yeah. Um, and, and colleges put those deadlines in place because they need to have a way to organize their work, <laughs> really. Mm-hmm. And so when you don't adhere to the deadline, um, you do run the risk of not getting as much money um, and not finding, getting good information when you need it either because the college is trying to process a lot of information at once mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for a lot of different students. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So your next question, this is from Lisa and it says when a college says it requires three years or credits of say a foreign language, what does that mean? So for instance, if a student places out of French one via a test before ninth grade and therefore starts with French 2 in high school without receiving credit for French 1, and then goes on to take French 2 and French 3, does the college looking look at taking French 3 as completing their three-year requirement, or does the student have to go on to take French 4 to get credit for three years of the language? <laughs> Just hope that makes sense. <laughs> it actually question, very though. much do. Yeah, it's a really good question, and it comes up a lot. Um, so I'm glad that you asked it. So again, this is this is one of those things, again, that drives everybody crazy about admissions. It depends. It depends on the school. Um, generally speaking, what I've found is that public universities, um, you know, they will count um, courses, you know, like if a student takes foreign language, in, um, you know, eighth grade or something like that. And so then has, they will count it as three years total. They will include the eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade. However, Mm -hmm. at the most selective, um, at the more selective private schools, they really want to see what you've done in high school. And so the fact that you took a foreign language earlier um, than high school just says, well, look, you can be even more advanced. You can really impress us by taking a foreign language, not just in 11th grade, but even also in 12th grade, you know, ideally. So, you know, if your student is looking at some highly selective or even just pretty selective private schools, 
my recommendation is really to keep going at least through the junior year, um, you know, and that would be, you know, unless your kid is just hating it and getting C minuses and, you know, in which case it's not doing them a favor. And so in that situation, probably just, you know, finishing it up in the sophomore year is fine. But, um, but I, I really want to stress this. I run into it a, it a lot, you know, students who are otherwise very, very strong, but are weak in foreign language, and it's going to hurt them. And I will say, too, that I think, although they will have fulfilled the requirements for the more selective public universities, remember that the way to get into a highly selective school is by standing out among your peers. Mm-hmm. So if you do the minimum, you're not standing out. However, if you go above and beyond that minimum, that is going to look positive, even to colleges that don't require it. So just kind of think about that. Right. And plus, you know, there's all the benefits of becoming more fluent in a language and all that sort of thing. So Right. Well, exactly. Well, I was talking to a student the other day who said, well, do I need, I was thinking about not taking French in my senior year. And, you know, and I talked to him some more and, you know, I, I said, you know, if you want to do study abroad, it's going to be better to be fluent. And he said, or, you know, to have greater fluency. And he's like, I do want to do study abroad. And he hadn't thought about it. And I thought it was almost funny because to me, it's so obvious. If you want to study abroad, you should really keep taking the language that you want to study abroad in. You know, like if you want to go to Paris, French is going to be helpful. And um, and he's like, oh, oh, yeah. Like you, know, like, you know that these classes lead towards learning, right? It's not just a grade on a transcript. Hopefully you're learning in these classes. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, do think the long game. And, like, if you're taking a language like Spanish, I run into this all the time with people who are, um, you know, they want to be doctors or, or they want to work in the healthcare professions. And they're like, uh, you know, I'm majoring in science, so I don't really need to keep taking Spanish. And I'm like, you know how useful it might be to be bilingual if you're working in the healthcare field? And, and not just Spanish, but, you know, other languages that are common in the United States, you know, Cantonese, etc. So, yeah. you know, don't... <laughs> You know, there's use to these things. So (laughs) (laughs) anyway, um, all right. So here's one. Do we have to pay capital gains taxes on distributions from our 529 plan? Tell us about that, Kathy. All right. So hopefully you should not have to pay capital gains taxes on distributions from your 529 plan. That's the whole point of 529 plans is that um, you save and the earnings grow tax deferred and then the earnings remain tax free as long as you use the money for qualified higher education expenses for the beneficiary on the account at an eligible school. So uh, an eligible school is any school that participates in federal financial aid programs. Qualified expenses are required tuition and fees, required books and supplies, and room and board if the student's at least half time. So pretty much many, many costs associated with college. So as long as you use, as long as you make a a withdrawal, a qualified withdrawal that's used for those that purpose, then you should not have to pay any tax on the gains in your 529 plan. Now, if you did decide to take money out of the 529 plan and not use it for college, you actually wouldn't pay capital gains tax. You would pay ordinary income tax on the earnings um, and a 10% penalty on the earnings. So just the earnings portion, but it would be ordinary income tax, not the capital gains tax, and it would be a 10% penalty also. But hopefully you're going to use that money in a way that you don't have to pay any tax on the earnings. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
That sounds good. All right. Oh, it's always... <laughs> I always Sorry, yeah. to read the next question. Okay. <laughs> so we still have time for another one? Um, yeah. Yeah. We have okay. a few minutes. All right. So Mel asks, what's the best way to tackle the college process for an African-American Hispanic freshman boy who's doing well in high school? Scholarships, testing, etc. Okay. So, I mean, by and large, everything's going to be like most things are going to be the same. Um, you know, I want to be clear about that. You're going to have, you're going to be meeting the same requirements in terms of admissions, documents to submit. You know, I recommend starting looking around at colleges and then junior year, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, I think that it is mostly for scholarships in particular, mm-hmm. it is a good idea to disclose um, to the colleges. You know, if you're, if you call someone up on the phone and you, you know, if you want to ask um, I mean, Kathy, maybe I should let you address this, actually. But, you know, at, at University of Chicago, um, obviously, I couldn't tell your ethnicity if I was just talking to you, uh, you know, over the phone. But if you wanted to disclose to me and say, you know, do you have any special scholarships for students of color? You know, I'm African-American. Then I would have been able to tell you about possible mm-hmm. scholarships. Now, I'll let you know, you can also disclose on the application. And at least with us, that would have automatically qualified you for scholarships that were for students of color. Um, so that would be sort of the main thing. Um, do you have anything to add in terms of scholarships for that? Yeah, I would also say... Um that uh, so certainly disclose on the college application so that you're considered for institutional aid from the school that may be targeted in that way. But also you can be searching for private scholarships, or you'll also hear just called outside scholarships. So these are scholarships from corporations and foundations and churches and community organizations. And I would say that um, even though this young man is only in ninth grade, um, we actually encourage families to get started on that outside scholarship search um, in ninth grade, because a ninth grader might find a scholarship that prompts them to do something over the next four years. So it may be too early to apply for the scholarship, but they may, you know, decide to do some community service or whatever, whatever thing the scholarship requires versus waiting until your senior year to look for scholarships when you're just trying to fit yourself into whatever's already out there. Um, so the scholarship search tools that are out there, like scholarships.com or fastweb.com, uh, the way they work is you build a profile and then they tell you about scholarships that might fit you. Um, and they also, they often ask about your, your race and heritage and all kinds of information. So definitely get started on looking for those outside scholarships now. Mm-hmm. It's also going to be very important to take the PSAT in 11th grade. I mean, you should take mm-hmm. it earlier, um, you know, for practice if, you're, if your um, high school offers it. But um, if you take it in 11th grade and you indicate again on the test that you're a student of color, an underrepresented student of color, then that'll put you in line for some other, for some scholarships that you might not find out about otherwise that you would qualify for based on being a really strong tester, like basically the same as the National Merit Scholarship, but it'll be geared towards particular students of color. So, um, and the other thing you can do, I mean, you can go, there are organizations like the United Negro College Fund, and, um, you know, there are organizations for Hispanics, although embarrassingly, I'm blanking on the name, even though a friend of mine worked for one of them. Um, 
But, uh, you know, do a web search and there are lots of organizations that are dedicated towards helping, you know, students from underrepresented groups go to college. Look them up now. See if they have scholarships. See if they they have additional college advising. Um, You know, there can be a lot of assistance out there. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So um, I'll ask you one question and uh, and then we'll go to break. So uh, Bridget asks, she said, my daughter just decided on what school she wants to attend. I know we're going to have to borrow to pay for it. When do we borrow the loans? Okay, that's a great question. So um, everyone is deciding by May 1st about where they're going to enroll. Um, So that's great. You make your deposit by May 1st. And then you have to figure out what you're going to borrow. And you have to borrow the money. Um, And so certainly you should be researching that now and be comfortable with what it is you might be borrowing when the time comes. But the actual process of applying for loans doesn't really happen until the summer. Um, And there's a couple reasons for that. First, um, you may not know exactly what you owe until the summer um, when the college starts sending out their first bill um, because you do borrow each year to finance college. So at the beginning of every summer, you know, you're really trying to figure out exactly what you're going to need based on any private scholarships that may have come in, based on what the college gave you, um, and then whatever the final costs are from the school. Um, And then the school actually doesn't expect you to be applying for those loans until the summer. And the reason for that is... um, for a couple of them, the federal parent loan, and then if you're looking at any private loans where you may have to co-sign, there are credit checks that happen when you apply for those loans. And so if you apply too early, so for instance, if you apply in April, um, by the time the school gets around to certifying the loan in the summer, because the summer is when colleges approve loans, um, by the time they get around to doing that, the credit check may have expired and they may have to pull your credit again. So wait until June, early July um, to apply for loans. And you can even go as late as if you know you have good credit and you're going to get approved, you can wait as long as, you know, end of July, beginning of August, but um, you don't have to do anything right away. Right now, you should just be researching what it is you might be borrowing when the time comes. Mm-hmm. All right, perfect. All right, so now um, let's go ahead and take a short break, um, and then Kathy and I will return to answer more listener questions. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. 
Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, Kathy Ruby and I are answering listener questions, so we'll continue to do so. So, Kathy, I think you have a question for me. Yes. So Jill asks, um, my daughter is taking the ACT, but she wants to sit for the SAT subject test in the AP courses that she took. Should she or can she if she's not taking the SAT? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is a great question because people do get confused by it. Um, So the SAT and the SAT subject tests are separate entities. Um, So you can absolutely have the ACT be your primary test, but then also take SAT subject tests. And actually, there are some colleges, there's probably only about 30 or so in the country at this point, but there are some colleges that strongly recommend or require SAT subject tests, and they recommend or require them even if you're taking the ACT. So um, so definitely sit for the SAT subject tests if they're required. And I think that the plan of, do, of sitting for the subject test when she's taking an AP course in that area is a very, very good plan as well. Um, so yeah, no worries. The SAT subject tests are one hour long tests or slightly I don't know, maybe they're 55 minutes or something, offered at the same time as the SAT, but you do not have to take the SAT to take those subject tests. Okay, good. Good to know. Okay, all right. So um, so Adrian asked, my son is applying for a whole bunch of outside scholarship. If he wins any, do we have to tell the colleges about this? <laughs> Well, first, congratulations to his son for applying for outside scholarships. That is a good thing. Um, And the answer is yes, you do have to tell the college about that. And if you read through the terms and the conditions of whatever award they sent, um, and sometimes those terms and conditions are online, sometimes they're something that's attached with the award letter. But if you read the fine print, it does tell you that if you receive any sor- any scholarships from any outside sources, you have to tell them about it. Um, and so then the next question is, you know, well, what will that do? Will they take away money they've already given me or um, will I get to just add this scholarship to the package? Um, and the answer is it depends. Um, but I will say most of the time, uh, 99% of the time, having brought in that outside scholarship, 100% of the time actually will help you um, because 
colleges have different policies, but everybody usually starts out with, okay, the first dollars will start to replace student loan and student work. Um, and then after that, we might take away institutional money. Um, but it really depends on the institution and the kind of package that you have. Um, most of the time when you get a merit scholarship, they're not going to take away part of a merit scholarship if you bring in an outside scholarship. Um, but they might take away part of a need-based grant. But it's never dollar for dollar. Um, so I would say you're always better off when you bring in outside money. So it is worth applying for those private scholarships um, to see what you can get, to see what you can do to sort of enhance the financial aid package you may have gotten from the college. Um, now, the outside scholarship policy that a college has usually can be found on their website or also in the terms and conditions of the award. Um, and if you can't find it, then just ask someone in the financial aid office, and they should be able to explain how outside scholarships will affect your particular package. Great. Great. Okay. So your next question. Um, all right. Rachel asks, is it a bad idea to apply early decision to a particular school if a better credentialed classmate is applying early decision to the same school? Hmm. Ooh, there's so many. It depends on that one that, <laughs> um, <laughs> like, that it's very hard to answer in the way this question was phrased. Um, not that it's a bad question, but just it really depends on who you are, who the who the better credentialed classmate is, or you know what your relative credentials are, um, including extracurriculars. And then it also depends on the actual college or university. Um, one of the things that I think this question is getting at is whether or not colleges have quotas, um, mm -hmm. you know, so that they'll only admit, you know, one student early decision. And I can promise you that that's not the case. It is true that colleges kind of keep an eye on numbers. They don't want to admit everybody from the tri-state area around New York, um, you know, the wealthy northern suburbs of Chicago and, you know, some of the wealthy areas of L.A. or San Francisco. They could easily admit entire classes just from those areas and they don't want to do that. So, mm -hmm. so they do, they do keep an eye, um, on numbers, but there's, they never, um, I've never seen exact quotas and the numbers tend to be more in terms of like kind of counties, if you will, like we don't want to be overrepresented from Fairfield County or Westchester County, um, mm -hmm. in New York. So that being said, if, the better credentialed classmate is better credentialed in terms of she's actually kind of in the running and you are thinking about applying early decision and you really look at her and you're like, you know what, I just don't, like, I'm just not competitive for this school because she's more typical of who gets in. Students with my numbers generally don't get in. If that's the case, that's not really about the fact that she's applying ED as well. That's about the fact that you might be wasting your early decision on a school that's just not going to happen for you. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're applying or if you're using early decision to apply to a school like as a strategy, I like to make sure that people know that early decision can give you a boost at some of these highly selective schools if you're already in the running. So um, UPenn is not going to happen for you early decision if you have Bs. It's not, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, it, right. It'll help you if you're in the running, but it's not going to help you if you're not in the running to begin with. So the answer is I, I can't really tell you, but, um, you know, but think about all these different elements that I mentioned. Great. All right. So let's see what Bob asks. Um, 
He said, my son has decided to attend his top choice school. We've asked them for more money and they gave a bit more, but there is still over 20,000 that he needs to cover each year. I've told him he needs to find scholarships to fill that gap. Where can he find them? I have to tell you, when I read this, I was like, ouch, like he's going to find 20,000 in a few months. Like, is this even possible? Um, you know, I mean, I 20,000 in loan maybe, but tell me, am I being too uh, negative here? No, you're not. And actually, I actually had a similar question to this the other day in one of the families that I was talking to. Um, and um, I think there is a perception for some that, you know, if you have this gap, well, if I just work hard and I can find scholarships to cover that gap. Um, and, you know, there are private scholarships out there. There are, you know, there are millions and millions of dollars out there, not that really go unclaimed, but there are scholarships out there if you're willing to work and find them um, and apply for them. And at this late date, quite frankly, most of the deadlines for next year are probably, if they're not passed, they're coming up pretty close. So, um, so you're right. That is in some ways the point of this question, which is that's a big gap to fill with private scholarships. Because the other thing about private scholarships is that most of them are in the range of, you know, $1,000, $500, $1,500. At least when I was at St. Olaf, and this is just a number that sticks in my head, and this was several years ago, but I think, you know, kids brought in a couple million dollars, but there were 3,000 students at St. Olaf. So do the math and that's, you know, five or $600 per student. Um, and not every student brought something in. So maybe the average among those who brought something in was somewhere along the lines of a thousand to $1,200. So, um, so I think what's key here is yes, he can certainly look for scholarships and fill some of the gap, but the most likely scenario is that he's going to have to borrow or, the parent is going to have to co-sign or borrow on his behalf because students are limited in how much they can borrow through the federal loan program on their own. Um, so he can certainly look for scholarships. It's an ongoing process, um, but it, it will be hard to fill that gap of $20,000. Yeah, you're not too mm-hmm. cynical. It's just, mm-hmm. unfortunately, the hard truth. Right, right. And it's unlikely that he'll get that much more money from the college either in subsequent years, right? Right, I mean, I think unless there's some big change in his situation. Um, maybe a younger sibling going to college or if the parent uh, loses their job. Um, not if they quit their job. <laughs> we right, often right. hear from parents, maybe I'll quit my job and then I'll get more financial aid. Trust me, you will never get as much money in financial aid as you lose when you lose your job. So, um so, yeah, uh, unless something big changes in their financial situation, there's, they're probably not going to get that much more in aid in upcoming years either. So mm-hmm. I think there's a big conversation to happen there about that $20,000 gap and how it's going to get covered and whether it's reasonable for an undergraduate student to borrow essentially $80,000 to get a, a bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's some hard thinking about that that needs to happen. So, yeah. All right, so your next one. Okay, this is actually kind of a long question, but students with learning, this is from Anne, students with learning differences are often advised not to tell colleges until they've been accepted. Is the same true for those with mental health diagnoses like anxiety or depression? With more and more teens suffering from mental health issues, would they be seen as a risky admission or a burden on an already overstrept 
outstretched support services? Or is it better if they're already identified and know they need support? So is it a, if it is advisable to be open about it, where's the best place to share their need for any therapy, medication, et cetera? Okay, so I'm, I'm first going to advise that it is risky um, to disclose these things. I'm not going to say that... that you shouldn't do it under any circumstances. Um, it is protected under the ADA. Um, you know, that being said, I think that it can be risky, but there are times um, when maybe risking it is a good idea. Um, you know, you know, it's kind of the same advice as I would give with learning differences. Um, you know, if like, you know, a student of mine with learning differences terrible grades in ninth and 10th after he was diagnosed and given the assistance that he needed and the accommodations he needed became an A student. I mean, it was <laughs> just dramatic. And so the colleges were going to look at that record and say, what's going on here? And we, you know, we need an explanation. And then once they had that explanation, they were like, awesome. So, um, you know, and he was admitted to some very big reach schools, you know, schools that by the numbers he wouldn't have gotten into. But when they looked at 11th grade as being really the start of where we could see his potential, then you know he was completely qualified and competitive for these schools. So, mm-hmm. so basically, what I would say is, if you if there is a good reason to disclose, then go ahead and disclose. But otherwise, what I would do is wait until you've been admitted, and then at that point, absolutely disclose. Find out about the kinds of um, services that are there. And I want to make sure you know, too, that you could go and visit a college, not disclose to the admission office, but talk to student services. Um, I don't know of any student services offices that will disclose unless you've specifically given them permission to, or it'll somehow help um, you in the admission process. So you can ask questions about these things, just not, um, you know, disclosing on your application or not disclosing to an admission officer. So that's mm-hmm. my that's my general advice. Um, I will say that I want to be clear that some colleges, when students have written essays about, you know, depression or anxiety issues and how they came out the other end and became stronger for it and became an advocate for other students in the same way, that that can also be that kind of really strong story, of course, then that might be another situation where they disclose. But make sure if you disclose that you're able to really point to the sort of enormous progress that you've made and that you're absolutely ready to, to take on college, um, mm-hmm. just maybe with a little additional counseling, which is frankly something a lot of college students are using these days anyway. So, yeah, um, yeah. so... So I think that's the last question we have time to answer, unfortunately. Yeah, so thank you so much, Kathy. I really appreciate it. Happy to help. And thank you to Mary Sue for discussing how to pick the best college for you. Uh, We regularly do shows where we focus on listener questions, and sometimes we even devote an entire segment to your questions. So be sure to submit them, and you can submit them on the College Coach Facebook page. So you should join us on Facebook. Now I want to tell you about our show next week. Ian Fisher will be returning as guest host, and his guests will be discussing how to select a major, Ivy League admission and athletic recruitment, and how income-based repayment plans work. 
And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find last week's show about standardized testing, applying to colleges in the UK, and much more. And if you like our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes. It takes only a moment of your time, and it's absolutely free. Last, don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time, so check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.